You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. And as you turn there, or turn on your phones or your iPads and uh, head toward Psalm 5, I'm going to begin our time by reading uh, God's Word in the, in the Scripture that we're going to consider this morning, Psalm 5. This is the Word of the Lord. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you, do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor, as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. Saints, reality frustrates the joy of those who trust in the Lord. We contemplate the frustrations in this life, and our hearts swell with fear, and they swell with anxiety. Life in this fallen world brings upon us suffering and tragedy and loss and failure, and heartbreak. And on top of this, we are children of the light, and the entire kingdom of darkness wars against us, God's people. And so there are temptations and there are trials everywhere. And in the context of our psalm, David, the anointed king, has sinned, and that sin has consequences. In his own home, his son has risen up and has conspired against him, David, to kick him out of his kingdom and to take over for himself. And so David, the anointed one who has the promise in the covenant from God, is now away from his city, away from his throne, and in the wilderness. David knows much of the frustration of reality from his own sin and from the fallenness of this world and the sin uh, that exists. And so our psalm today is actually full of encouragement for those who suffer much adversity. And so it's correctly labeled the morning prayer. The morning prayer. And this psalm brings us into God's presence. God, through this psalm, takes our hand and he leads us to himself. And yes, it is through the cross. It is through suffering, which we experience his marvelous light, his mercy, his sweetness in his fatherly care. And our God and our King who rules over all the circumstances of our life is not bringing evil upon us. He hates and he judges evil and all that he does is good. However, as you heard the psalm, it sounds harsh and it sounds nasty to our modern ears. There's this call for justice and judgment upon the enemies of God's people. 
But it's a song and a prayer like this one that sounds so hateful because it's rooted in reality. And I hope to show you that this is not a vindictive, personal prayer of hatred against one's enemies. In fact, this is really the first psalm that reveals the earthiness of the Bible. It's not detached from our visceral emotions and our experiences in this life. And we hope in the reality that God hates evil. God's people find hope in that reality. That he will not tolerate evil forever. And so through poetry and through this prayer and through this song, as we live lives of continual hope and favor in the Lord and struggle with evil, God is telling us who he is and who he has made us to be through Psalm 5. I want to repeat that for us. Through, through the poetry and prayer and through this song, which is a song to be sung, as we live lives of continual hope and favor in the Lord and struggle with evil, God is telling us who he is and who he has made us to be in Psalm 5. So who is the Lord and who has he made us to be? That's our task uh, in Psalm 5. And Psalm 5 is in two sections. There's kind of this first section of prayer, verses 1 through 7, and sort of a repetition of prayer in verses 8 through 12. And as I jump into the psalm, let me offer a prayer that God would help us as we look to his word. Our great king and our great God, Lord, we ask that you would fill me with your words, with your passion, with your goodness, with your truth. Lord, we pray that you would uh, stir up in us your grace, that you would save us from distraction. You would cause us to see what you've done, who you are, who you've made us to be, and what you continually feel toward us. And so we ask this uh, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Looking to verse 1, give ear to my words. Verse 1 through 3 is really the, the beginning of, of this first section of prayer. And it's really just hear me. And he begins this prayer for God's justice. And he says, give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. You know, in some of our relationships, there's a very important distinction to be made when we are talking with one another. And that question often sounds like, do you want me to listen in order to to comfort you and to understand you? Or do you want me to listen in order to help you fix this problem? That's a really important question when people are talking to us. And the psalmist here, I think, has no clue what he wants. He wants the will of the Lord and has no idea how to ask. And so he says, consider my groaning. The word here is the musings and the murmurings of my heart. Just consider that Prayer is first the spirit of prayer before it's the habit of speaking the words. The words are the garnishment of the groanings within our spirit toward God's will. And so consider the fact that I'm stirred up toward you, Lord. And I'm, I'm disappointed with these circumstances that evil is rising up and your anointed one is in the wilderness. So consider my groanings. It's like being in a dark room and you're just you're kind of reaching for something to grab onto or something that might give you light. Prayer first starts there, I think, according to God's word and his testimony to us. We're searching for that. Our hearts and our spirits, they've been made new and we long for that. But we are sinners and we are saints. And so sometimes it, it just sounds like groaning. And we groan first. And the Lord understands. But before we talk about how the Lord understands, what would his heart be meditating on? The word is the same word of, of Psalm 1. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And we know that Christ Jesus is the blessed one who did meditate on God's law day and night. And we have life in him. So David, typological of the coming Messiah, how would his heart be meditating? Well, I think he's meditating on the goodness of the Lord himself. The plan of redemption how God has chosen a people for himself and that offspring would bless the nations and we would be with him forever. He would be our God. We would be his people. He's meditating on the love of God as it's revealed in his law, how it shows us 
how to live, but it reveals our wrongs. We confess today that we have not fully given all of ourselves to the love of God or the love of other people. But with God's testimony comes the sacrificial system, which teaches us of how we are brought to God, made at peace with God through the sacrifice of another. And all of God's people throughout history has hope for that one, the Messiah. And so David finds hope in God and his promises. And so as Absalom, his son's revolt in all of its might rises up, David calls out to Yahweh. His heart is groaning according to all of that that we just said. His heart is groaning and he's reminding the Lord, you've called me out and you've given me your promises as your people's king. I'm not the one who plots evil against you. I'm the blessed one. You have made me to love you and love your law. And his heart groans out to God. And see in verse 2, give attention to the sound of my cry. Weeping has a voice. Weeping has a voice. But who in the world can hear the weeping and understand it? Well, in our home, mommy has learned a new language, crying. It's the same cry that I hear, but apparently he's hungry. The same cry, apparently he's uh, sleepy. The same cry, he's in a, in a weird position. And I'm just like, okay, all right, apparently you're right. But there's sometimes Charlie cries, we got no idea. Well, with our heavenly father, there is not a weep, a tear, a cry that he does not understand. And he stores up our tears. He knows our cries and our tears and the groanings of our heart, and he's never confused about it. He knows just what we need. He cherishes and he knows the cries of his people, even when we don't have a clue what the groanings in our heart could, could be asking for. But we groan for it. There's never a time that he doesn't know what we need. And how is this true? Why does he know that about us? Well, because, as David says, he is my king. He is my God. Saints, by oath and by covenant and by promise and by the blood of the Lamb, he is our God. He is our king. And so, verse 3, David says, So in the morning, you hear my voice. I wake up in the morning. And I cry out to you. And I cry out to you. And he repeats it. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you. And I watch. And this word prepare is the same word that's used when the priests are ordering the wood on the altar. And they're putting the animal to be slaughtered. And they're ordering the sacrifice in order for forgiveness and reconciliation to be happened through this sacrifice. It's also the word that would indicate, uh, you know, uh, directing an arrow. For battle. So David says, in the morning, I, do, I, I orient myself toward my God and my King, and I remember who you are, and I remember who I am. And as I groan, I offer my words because of that, because I know that you are my God and you are my King. I order myself. But he doesn't just shoot his arrow of prayer toward heaven. He says he watches. As I was just going over and over and over this psalm, I thought about uh, the persistent widow that Jesus tells the parable of. And he tells that parable to the effect that his people would always pray and never lose heart because of the delay in his return. That's an important piece, because of the delay in his return. He used a... If the lesser is true, then how much is the greater true? So there's a mean judge. He didn't fear God, and he wasn't even respected by his friends. And this widow representing the poor and the needy and the oppressed, she asks for justice against her adversary. And the unjust judge finally just gave in because she kept pestering him for justice. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Will he delay long over them? I tell you, Jesus says, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the answer is yes, his people will be waiting for him because we stand here eagerly watching for the return of the Lord, eagerly hoping in the reality of the new heavens and the new earth when we put on new bodies and we sing a new song in a new place. So think of what this means about God. Think about what he is to you, what he has made himself to you, a father who knows your cries. He has made himself your king and your God, and he cherishes when you cry out and have no idea what you're crying for. This is what God has done to you, saints. He loves you. And so in the morning, it's good that we rise in the morning and prepare ourselves, orient ourselves in reality. What, what is reality? Who am I? And what am I doing? The king of the universe has made himself your father, and he hears you in the morning. And it's good to take a moment, even when our words seem, in, you know, uh, incommunicable. But we reorient ourselves, who God is and who we are. And we shoot our prayers toward heaven, knowing that we are heard and realize that David is in the midst of the wilderness. It is easy to get a good habit going when we feel good. This is just a general bottom of the barrel. I'm away from the kingdom. I'm away from the throne. And God has given me all these promises and none of this actually makes sense. These two realities don't really go together. That these promises are going to come to pass. And then, but this is where I am in these circumstances. So David continues his prayer, and where does he go? Well, in verses 4 through 6, he finds comfort in God's justice by rehearsing God's holy character. He actually finds comfort in the justice of God by rehearsing God's holy character. Look with me. Put your eyes on verses 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. That's just a poetic way of saying he hates evil. He hates evil. It's not that he just doesn't have fun with evil. He hates evil. That's who God is. He summarizes that again. Evil may not dwell with you. The word dwell is sojourn. Evil can't walk with you. Evil can't live under your kingship. Evil doesn't, doesn't want to be with you. You don't walk and protect and hear the prayers of evil. And in verse 5, the boastful, the prideful shall not stand before your eyes. In case we thought that it was only the sin that God hates, it's clear that he hates all evildoers. All who do evil, he also cannot stand because he's holy and he's good. And so what does he do? He destroys those who speak lies. We're going to see this come up later in the second section of the, of the repetition of the prayer. But it's who they are. They're wicked and they're boastful and therefore they speak lies. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Their hearts are evil and so they speak lies, verse 6. And the Lord is holy and will not tolerate evil forever. And so David calls upon his, what he's promised to do, which is rid evil, judge evil. And make all things right. And so he says, destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Still fruits of, of wickedness, of our wicked hearts. Quick to murder and quick to deceive. All of these would characterize the campaign of Absalom. I think what's interesting is in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit helps us interpret this. Because Psalm... Uh, excuse me, Romans 3, Paul uses the, the repetition of this verse, which is verse 9, if you put your eyes there. There is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost being is destruction. It's a repetition of the same evil. But Paul uses that in his list in, in Romans 3 to say that there is none righteous. There's none who do good. The, the problem that we can run into is that this describes us. But David is calling on this stuff in a hopeful way. He's reminding God of his holy character and his holy justice as a comfort. Sort of a, a, a tension there. 
Maybe verse 7 will help us figure this out. There is hope in the fellowship with God. How? Is there hope in the fellowship of God if we take this verse and the Holy Spirit speaking to us in the New Testament about these direct verses and they're talking about us, do we fellowship with a God? Evil doesn't sojourn with the Lord and we've broken all his law. But I, through my righteousness, no, through the abundance of God's steadfast love, I will enter your house I will lift my heart to heaven in the fear of the Lord. I'm not those things. I'm not those things that I just stated because I'm righteous. It's not what he said. He's not those things because of the abundance of the steadfast love of the Lord. Holiness is a fruit of the steadfast love of the Lord. We cannot produce it in ourselves. God must do it. And it's a good thing that a steadfast love doesn't come in tiny ripples. It comes in abundance. You'll never run out. You'll never not have what you need. And just see how David matches the descriptions of evil with his reality through the steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord hates wickedness, but David experiences God's loving kindness. Evil may not sojourn with the Lord, but what's it say? David is going to enter the house of the Lord. The boastful and the prideful won't even stand before the Lord's eyes, but David will go into his temple and bow down in the fear of him. The Lord destroys those who lie, and he hates those who shed blood and who deceive. But David will fear the Lord. That's a gift. And this is a fear that knows the holiness of God. It's a fear that knows the righteousness of God. It's a fear that knows the judgment of God. But it's a fear that is swimming in the abundant, loving kindness and forgiveness of God. Knowing that the sacrificial system and all of God's delivering providence with his people is pointing to one thing. How his just Hatred and destruction of evil was placed upon his son. It's not his righteousness, and it's not that God overlooks it. And it's just like, I'm just going to choose to love you. He takes the judgment we deserve, and the Lord Jesus has taken it all. He poured it out on his son so that we can say, though this is true of us, And we've broken every one of his commandments, never keeping a single one. We, through the abundance of his steadfast love, will enter his house. And so in the morning, we will cast our hearts towards heaven in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. Not out of fear. Not out of fear of his judgment and his condemnation. But it's because his judgment and his condemnation was taken by Christ Jesus. And now in the the awesome power and beauty of his plan of salvation and his glorious holiness, but his glorious love for me, cast my heart to heaven in the fear of the Lord. And so then we get to verse 8. And this is sort of the second repetition of prayer. This is uh, um, sort, of, sort of literally the same format. And as we begin this prayer, I want to remind us, speaking of the Lord Jesus who took our judgment, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament also tells this to us about how he also was the singer of the Psalms. That in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. David doesn't enter the house of the Lord because of his reverence, but Jesus did. And he enters into that house because of his perfect righteousness in your place. You and I don't receive the forgiveness of God, and then live a life that's worthy of walking into the house of the Lord. That life has been lived for us by Jesus Christ himself, and he stood in our place, and he suffered our plight, yet without sin. 
And that righteousness is counted as yours. His death is counted as yours. And so through the abundance of his steadfast love, we walk into his house. And so although David is driven away from his throne and he's out of his city and Absalom's bloodthirsty, deceptive campaign seems to be growing stronger and stronger. And all of this is a consequence of David's sin. David, in that first section, rehearses what pleases the Lord and what doesn't please the Lord. And it's a rehearsal that shows the character of God, and it reminds David that his evil, David's own evil, will not prevail. And all of this is founded upon God's abundant, steadfast love. And we take hope in the fact that his judgments are numbered, but his mercy is innumerable for his saints. And so we now go to what I stated in the second repetition of prayer starts. David says, So lead me, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Lead me not in my righteousness because I have none. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. I know that your eyes upon me, Lord, and I know that you give the righteous your attention and you give the righteous your ears and you have made me righteous by faith. And so make straight your way before me. Make straight your way before me. I obviously am prone to evil. The wickedness around me leads to death. And so I need you, Lord, to make your way straight before me is what he's praying. He's a God who hears and he delights in making himself a king and a God who understands your weepings. He's a God who sanctifies and takes you by the hand, will never let you go, look directly in your eyes, and lead you every step of the way. So David says, lead me in your righteousness. I've got none. I'm prone to evil. There's wickedness all around me. Make your way straight before me. What a sign of grace it is to long for the way of the Lord. As we No, God tells us in Romans 3 that we don't naturally desire that. We desire the way of me, the way that gets me what I want, and it all leads to death. I will turn good things into self-serving, destructive things. But what a grace it is to long for the way of the Lord because of my enemies. The kingdom of darkness wars against us. Because of that, because of my still so dead flesh, that longs for a resurrection, make your way straight before me. It's complicated in this fallen world. And then verse 9, 4, he says, For there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. That's the verse that Paul quotes in Romans 3 and verse 13. And then he says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. So again, this is the reason he wants to be led. Because the counsel all around him leads to death. There's no truth in their mouth. Their destruction, their throats an open grave, so they flatter. Make them bear their guilt. Because their counsels lead to death. They have set themselves against the Lord. Absalom, in this case, knows the covenant that God has made with David and stands up to go against it. And so David said, he has set himself up against you. Judge him. It's destruction in its lies. You see, Psalm 1, excuse me, if you flip over to Psalm 2 and you look at verses 1 to 3, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This happens even today, saints. The kings of the earth set themselves and and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is what Absalom's doing, and this is the judgment against which David is crying out against. Lord, they've set themselves up against you. We today cry out against the kingdom of darkness. Our evil flesh that still exists within us, we cry out, Lord, make your way straight before me. Let me not follow my way. 
We cry out from the evil temptations and sins from without that are a part of this fallen world and the kingdom of darkness. Lord, judge this. Make this all right. Put an end to this. Our hearts cry out. I'm so tired of being prone to sin. I'm so tired of the kingdom of darkness. It seems to rule life in this fallen world. And then verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you. Although we're tired, we're angry, we cry out against those things, we have a refuge in the midst of those tears. And that refuge says, rejoice, be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. It hurts. We still have groanings, and we cry and have no idea what we're feeling or thinking or crying about, but we're longing toward the Lord. And the Lord still says, Rejoice, because your refuge is in me. He gives us a new song, saints. Let them ever sing for joy. Why? Because we don't have to defend ourselves. He is our protection. You remember what, he, what David prayed in Psalm 3, that the Lord is our shield. He's the best thing about us, and he's the lifter of our head. For those reasons, we sing a new song with a smile through tears. And look at this beautiful piece. Those who love your name, they may exult in you. You used to hate God. Born in Adam, you were his enemy. You wanted nothing to do with him. But now you love him. You love the Lord, and he loves you. In, in, in Matthew 6, when Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about not worrying and not being anxious because the Lord takes care of the birds. Again, that's the lesser. How much more does he care about you? But he says, so don't worry, but pray. And so here's the thing that we all feel like hypocrites before the Lord. The Lord has redeemed us from that, though. He's redeemed you from having to feel like a hypocrite before him or before you because you know you're needy. You know your only righteousness is Christ. You know your only forgiveness is found in him. And so you continually go back to the throne of grace in your time of need and you say, Lord, I love you. And I long for a new body that doesn't sin. But you have taken it all away. And before one another, we're quick to forgive. We're not going to hold it in and walk around embarrassed. I messed up. I was quick to mess up. I want to be quick to forgive. I want to be quick to confess. We don't have to worry about that fear of being a hypocrite. We love the Lord. It's not because you did anything. But through the abundance of his steadfast love, you love him. You love him. This is the freedom, saints, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Not only from the bondage of sin, but free to love the Lord God whom you once hated. This is good news. And I brought up Psalm 2. Later down, Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his uh, wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He's going to handle the evil. Those who plot against him, it's in vain. And it may seem like it's winning. Because I'm in the desert. I am away from my throne. I'm away from my city, David says. And you've given me all these promises. And I know that, that, that the king is going to judge and they plot in vain. But it feels very weird to be out here in the wilderness. Those things just don't seem to be connecting right now. So I groan. And in the morning, I lift my heart to heaven. Because I know the truth. I know your holiness. I know your plan. And I know that you will judge, that you are my refuge. You have given me a new song to sing even in the wilderness. And you have given me your protection. And you have caused me to love your holy name. And so I'm going to take a moment to reflect a little bit. Because I think Psalm 12, or excuse me, Psalm 5 and verse 12, I want to use as our conclusion. 
because we pick up right there the one for the many. Again, that Psalm 1 talks about, that Psalm 3 talks about, Psalm 2 talks about. You cover him with favor as with the shield. You bless the righteousness, the, the righteous one. So before going to that, I want to reflect. I started this saying that what God is doing in this psalm for us today is he's showing us who he is and he's showing us who he has made us to be. So who is God? Well, I want to answer that question. Number one, he is the holy judge. I want to caveat this for his people. David is preaching of his holiness, not as just a big scare, but he's finding hope in the holy judgment of God. And so I want us to see that this morning, that he's the holy judge for his people. This is from verse 4, verse 6, verse 9, and verse 10, all about God's judgment. Notice that David leans, again, on the holy judgment of God for comfort, because he's not a comfort. He's not a God who tolerates in wrongdoing, and evil doesn't sojourn with him. So as we experience life today, we know that there's an end coming for evil, for sin, for death, for sickness, for fear, for anxiety. There's an end coming because our God is a holy judge and he does not tolerate wrongdoing. And outside of Christ, we should warn our friends and our family who do not trust in the Lord that outside of Christ, God is terrible. He is so good and that's the worst thing for sinners. Outside of Christ, God is terrible. But here's the thing. Don't leave it there for your friends and for your neighbors because Paul didn't leave it there. After he says that no one is righteous, he says, according to the law, what do we got? Nothing. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, Bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There is a righteousness apart from the law. We've all broken it. And his arms are wide open, and he says, come to me, all who are weary, all who need rest. So we do warn the unbelievers, but don't leave it as a warning. The door is open, and the king calls that all who would believe in him shall have eternal life. And he is the end of the law for righteousness. And he doesn't just look away from sin. He doesn't just look over it, as we talked about, in order to count us righteous so that we could enter into his house. He despises it. And in Christ, the judgment of God on sin and on all wrongdoing is our comfort as we sojourn with God this side of eternity. That adversity you face in this life, the temptation that just doesn't leave you alone, the evil that makes no sense to us in this world, the heartbreak we feel because of all of this, God is in that with us. He hates it too. He despises it. It won't ever be in his presence. It can't dwell with him. And there's coming a day, saints, all evil will be judged and put away forever. So verse 10, David cries out that they would bear their guilt. And here's the hope, saints. The judge is the one who bore our guilt. John 5, we read, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he's given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. He's the judge. He is the judge. Christ Jesus is the judge. But Romans 8, 34, but who is to condemn? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The judge died. Who is to condemn? But the judge is coming back. He's coming back. And he is coming back to judge righteous or unrighteous, good deeds, evil deeds. And if you are found in Christ Jesus, you are judged righteous. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. So who is God? He is the holy judge for his people. 
but he is also the hope of his people. He's the holy judge for his people. He's the hope of his people. And I'm pulling this from verses 7, 8, 11, and 12. And all of these are about him being our refuge. Through the abundance of his steadfast love, we enter his house. And he's our protection. He's given us a new song, and he's caused us to love his holy name. So how is he the hope of his people? Well, his steadfast love walks us right into his presence. That's our hope, is that when we wake up in the morning, and, and that preparing ourselves, that orienting ourselves before the Lord, we're getting back to the reality that I've been given everything, that the Father loves me, that I'm his child, and he knows my groanings, the ones that I can't even put words to. His steadfast love, morning by morning, walks us into his presence because we are prone to think, this is all the stuff I should have done yesterday, and this is all the things I felt that I regret, and this is all the things that still haunt me today. I need to, I need to just purge myself somehow to feel like I can go to the Lord. However we do it, we talk ourselves into that crazy talking. It's the abundance of his steadfast love, folks. We do God a disservice. When we think we come to his presence with anything but his grace and his mercy that can't be earned, that can't be deserved. So we fight that adversity in us because the flesh still says sinner, condemned. God is angry with you. You need to do this. And the Lord says, come into my presence. Come to me, all who are weary. He's brought us from worship of self without hope in this world, alienated from Christ. And he has brought us into his fold. Here's the thing. His steadfast love does walk us into his presence. But it often comes in mystery as in our experience in the Christian life. Our God has a habit of working through the darkness and evil to show us his marvelous and glorious Light and it keeps our hearts reaching out to heaven in the fear of Him. Think about John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. And Bruh is sitting in a jail cell. It, G, G, hey, go talk to Jesus. Is He the one? Ask Him if He's the one because I'm just, I'm in jail. Jesus answers them with all the ways that he fulfills the prophets of Isaiah. We don't, John gets his head cut off. Somehow, that is the way the Lord works to keep our hearts reaching out to him. It just feels like jail. This makes no sense. This is wrong. What's wrong? He was in jail for preaching the good news. And the Lord was working all kinds of things. I, I don't know why the Lord works this way, but all his ways are good. And it was through the darkest day of planet earth where Christ Jesus, the son of God died, that we all have a new song and a new name and a new hope. I, I, I don't understand the Lord in this way. C.S. Lewis says he's a lion, but he's not a tame lion. His ways are mysterious, but they are oh so good. So he is the hope of his people because his steadfast love walks us into his presence. But he's the hope of his people because he sanctifies us. This is why David calls on the Lord, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. That's what he does. He will lead us, take us by the hand, look us in the eyes, and never let us go. And we see these two paths within this psalm. There's the words of the prayer, David. There's the word of God, and then there's the word of the wicked. It's all through this psalm. So there's two paths in this life. The eternal logos, the eternal word of God, or the word that's a part of this world, which is wickedness and evil. Evil has a word, and it leads to death. It leads to selfishness. It leads to destruction. But our God has a word too. And it leads to life. It leads to life. 
And so this is who our God is. He's the holy judge for his people, and he's the hope of his people. But what else is he telling us in this psalm about who we are, who we are to be? Well, he placed truth in us. The word became flesh. It dwelt among us. He came to his own. His own did not know him not. His own did not know him. And he accomplished our salvation, and he has placed his truth within us. I, I, I think about Jesus' prayer in the high priestly prayer. Get there eventually. In verse 8, he says, For I have given them the words, Jesus says to, you know, to his people, he's speaking to God, but about his people, I have given them words that you gave me. They have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And in verse 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We've been given a word. And it will accomplish all of its purposes, saints. So he's placed truth in us. And, and he desires what's best for us. So how good is it, saints, that this is our Lord, that he desires that our heart and our hands and our souls would be oriented toward him. And all that we think and all that we do. How glorious and good is that? This is what the Lord desires for us. This is what David prays. Lead me in righteousness. There's evil all around, all in me. Make your way straight before me. That we would wake up in the morning and orient ourselves and, and just get back to reality. What is reality? That God loves you and he is making his way straight before you. That is through the abundance of his steadfast love, not in your effort and your merit. That tend to actually keep us from God rather than going to him. He desires that our, the thoughts that we think and the prayers that we pray would reflect who he is. Has this prayer not reflected who God is? That he's rehearsed his character and it's brought peace and comfort. That it's grounded in the fact that Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our hope. And maybe even 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5 would help us even put more. Who has he made us to be? And we ask to you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I want to stop right there. This pray without ceasing. What we see in the first two verses of our psalm, this groaning, that it's, a, it's first a, a wordless groaning and murmuring and musing of the heart. It's the spirit of prayer that we walk with about this life. Where according to the promises and the testimony of God, our hearts are longing for the righteous way. Our hearts are longing for the love of God. And our hearts are groaning for that. Prayer is, is first, it's the spirit of prayer before it becomes this habit that we just wake up in the morning and offer this prayer. It's more than that. That's not the point. The ceaseless praying is the fact that you love the Lord. and Your heart groans for him. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. It's okay that half the words we speak just seem to not come together in, in very elegant ways. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every work of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That's what he desires to do. And may your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So who is God and who he has made us to be? The Lord teaches us these things out of Psalm 5. And so I conclude our time this morning 
with verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The congregation of the righteous that we read about in verse 11 will stand or fall on the success of the anointed one. We will sing a new song. We will love the name of the Lord. We will rejoice in his refuge and have his protection on the success of the anointed one. And he blesses the righteous. And he covers him with favor as with a shield. The congregation of the righteous is depicted standing with the righteous one in this verse. And so we go to Revelation 5. That the scroll, which says, here is the point of reality. Here is what God's plan is for everything. There's no one to open it. There's no one to consummate this whole entire plan. The mighty angel has it and, and cannot open it. Then we hear a lion, but we look and we see a lamb covered in his own blood, and he is worthy to open the scroll. And around that throne is the people of God, new people singing a new song in a new heavens and new earth. And I conclude with the reading of Romans 8, 31 and following. As you think about the fact that he is worthy and he will consummate all things, evil will cease. He will make all things new. And as you're in the wilderness, you do have a song to sing. You do have his protection. You do love the Lord your God. As you think about those things, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.